0: Hello, I'm your host, Grayson Brulte. Welcome to another episode of SAE Tomorrow Today, a show about emerging technology and trends in mobility with leaders, innovators, and strategists who make it all happen. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to be joined by Amanda Simpson, Vice President, Research and Technology at Airbus Americas. She'll share the company's approach to innovative and sustainable aviation. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Amanda, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you, Grayson, for having me. Excited to have you here because Airbus develops world-class aircrafts, and the company has a strong commitment to sustainability. In your opinion, how is Airbus approaching sustainable aviation? I read articles, I read news releases, and it seems that I'll use the term: it's a company-wide approach to sustainability.
1: We've made a very clear point that sustainability is part of our mission. Matter of fact, our, our our new mission statement is: we pioneer. Sustainable aerospace for a safe and united world. So, I mean, we put it right there into into our top mission statement. But our is our intent is to be the thought leader as well as actually pushing the industry forward with regards to sustainability. Does the industry? need pushing forward or is the
0: industry generally aligned with Airbus's goals around sustainability?
1: Well, I think it did need a pushing forward. I think the industry has uh, has now, ca- I won't say caught up, but is definitely on board on the same path. But, you know, we started this journey well over a decade ago, you know, three, four years ago, quite frankly, right before the pandemic, we started making it a, a, a big priority within, within the uh, organization. And, As the industry is emerging from the pandemic, it's become kind of a universal issue. We've seen our customers, the airlines, signing on to not only pledges, but actually making purchases of of more sustainable fuels. We've seen competitors in the space and, and even some small startups that are working towards the decarbonization as well as the zero emission goal for aviation. So, we, you know, we, we've started this. We're glad that people are coming along. And now that the industry has set a net zero carbon emission goal by 2050, I mean, there's a lot to be done. So we want to be part of that journey. We want to help lead that journey. And that's, you know, we are running forward as, as fast as we can.
0: And airplanes fly fast. (laughs) Yes, they do, which
1: means you got to think fast and think ahead of the aircraft. Uh, Yeah, I've been an instructor for a flight instructor for nearly 40 years. And one of the things is always about uh, teaching the students about thinking about what happens in the next minute, the next five minutes, the next 10 minutes, the next hour. Uh, Here in our industry, we have to be thinking about what's happening in the next month, in the next year, in the next decade, in the next century plotting out what are the possible opportunities, what are the um, potential obstacles, uh, what issues need to be addressed in you know, starting now, and, and really moving that direction as part of uh, where we want to go.
0: And, and at the same time, the consumer market, the passengers that fly on your customers' uh, services that are on your aircrafts, are moving towards that. To me, the big sign around sustainability in aviation was when you go on Google Flights, they have the carbon calculator. Instead, so if you go on this Airbus aircraft versus competitor's aircraft, it's less carbon. To me, that was a big, major milestone, and the airlines are using that as a selling point. When that feature went in and just your average passenger is looking into into the carbon footprint, did that accelerate Airbus's initiative?
1: Well, no, I mean, I think we had already been on that path, and, and that's kind of one of the, the ways we've been seeing other parts uh, adjacent to the industry getting on board. What, what hasn't been visible to the, we'll just say the general public, has been the corporations, completely unrelated to aviation, that have made sustainability commitments, uh, whether it's their scope one, two, or three carbon reductions, right, scope three being any carbon emissions from the the results of all their work. And they've been talking, these large corporate customers, right, business travelers, which are quite frankly, the backbone of the aviation industry, uh, have been talking to the airlines and saying, what can we do to reduce our carbon footprint? So we wanna make an agreement with an airline. We want to make an agreement with um, an airframe manufacturer to help push that forward. So that's where, interestingly enough, behind the, the public scene, a lot of the pressure on the airlines has been coming from to move that direction. We were already part of it saying there's a solution that is coming and we're working to ensure that the, we have those solutions available for our customers.
0: Because when the corporate purchasing manager calls and commits to X amount of seats, some of these larger Fortune 500 companies, that's a big chunk of their revenue. And you don't want to lose one of those Fortune 500 companies. So it's forcing them. If you don't act, you're going to lose the revenue. You lose the revenue, your share price is going to go down and you eventually go out of business.
1: Right. Uh, I I mean, the the financial uh, makeup of airlines is interesting. I think there's I read a study years ago that said, um, you know, when they sell the first class seats on the plane, the flight's been paid for and then everybody else's profit on board. So uh, they very much, the airlines are very, very much looking towards those business travelers, those agreements with various corporations to ensure that they stay good customers.
0: It's it's consistent. Revenue, there's an industry, as you said earlier, there's a consistency to move towards climate neutral flying. How's Airbus working to achieve this from an aircraft perspective? Are you sourcing steel maybe with renewable energy? How are you doing that to achieve that?
1: Well, it's interesting. So, when we look at our overall emissions, it, it's quite large, and 98% of it is based on the fuel that we're burning over the life of the aircraft. And, you know, aircraft last 30, 40 years. So, a major part of that focus is indeed the fuels themselves. The other 2% is the supply chain. It's like you said, uh, where we're getting the materials from, the amount of energy that we use in the construction of our aircraft, whether it's airliners, helicopters, spacecraft, etc. So those are maybe some of the easier places to look, right? Making sure that we're sourcing our energy from renewable assets. Um, the materials is a is a longer term process Because our aircraft are certified based upon the the materials and the processes to get them to, you know, in the design, of course, to make them safe. And that is certified by all the various entities around the world uh, that work on certification. You know, we think of the FAA, but there's a European agency, a Canadian agency, a Chinese agency. There's one for almost every country. So we can't just change the materials per se. Now, that being said, we'll take that step back. Fuel, right? 98% is based on the fuel. So we've been working with the regulatory agencies, the certifying agencies to look at different fuels. And right, and today, all of our aircraft are now certified to fly on a blend of sustainable aviation fuel. That would be fuels that today are primarily coming from, from bioproducts, right? The leftover grease from uh, the, the French fry uh, fryer or uh, fatty animal byproducts from various industries and converting those into fuel. So all of our aircraft today can operate on that 50% blend of those products, right? 50% these bioproducts, 50% the traditional jet fuels we're gearing towards the 100% of these sustainable fuels. And our goal is to have our our products certified for those by the end of this decade, by 2030. And then the step beyond that is to say, well, let's move beyond the biofuels and actually create synthetic aviation fuels, not using petroleum or animal byproducts or even food or agricultural waste, but to actually say we can bring in synthetic fuels. And that's a longer term goal. There's some experiments and development projects going on. They look very, very promising and that'll tackle that. But back to your question about the the different materials, you know, today's aircraft are already 50% cleaner than the aircraft that were 50 years ago. And only 20% of today's fleet are with the newest generation of aircraft, the, the A350s, which are mostly a composite airframe, very light, you know, lightweight but strong. The NEO aircraft are, are 320 series and 330 series and 220 series that use much more efficient engines so that their uh, emissions are already 15% better than the emissions of the generation before that. So that's that's one way to do it, but then is to look for what's gonna be the next generation of aircraft. And that's when we're looking at completely different fuels, new technologies, new materials to actually get down to, you know, not only, z- um, you know, net zero, but zero emissions themselves.
0: That's where the goal I like what you said, 50% cleaner than 50 years ago. Me being me, you'll get a kick out of this. They're cleaner because you can't smoke cigarettes on the plane anymore. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I don't think much of that, uh, that cigarette smoke went out the tailpipe, but I remember, uh, growing up that I could hear an aircraft taking off from our local airport, which was about eight miles away because the, there was this loud, low rumble and you could feel it. And then of course, after it took off, you could, you could follow the smoke trail for like 10 minutes. Well that isn't the the practice today. Um if you you know some of our newer aircraft you you don't hear them once they get above a 1000 or, or more feet. You don't get that low rumble that you that you know propagates across the ground. So not only are they cleaner, but they're quieter and and that's part of our environmental impact. Quieter
0: gives you the ability to go into smaller airports or airports that might be closer to housing without having the disturbance of the noise that you described.
1: Well certainly there are local regulations and restrictions at certain airports that, that you know we keep in mind and that you know make opening new markets important for our customers. but always safety uh, has to be the, the primary concern uh, as well as being good neighbors. Uh, aviation is such a critical part of our culture, of our society. That it's not going to go away, but we need to make sure we're, we're doing it in in a very responsible fashion.
0: You're taking res- responsible towards sustainability. and To me, noise plays a part in that. Do you feel that noise will be one of the defining factors in the aviation industry as they work to? In, increase and in, sorry, lower carbon emissions, lower noise. Has that become a defining factor as companies such as Airbus roll out their sustainability plans and implement them?
1: Well, noise has been a, a defining factor for many decades, and there have been increasing regulations on how loud aircraft can be. And over the decades, different regulations different re- levels have been put in place. And that has always been pushing the industry, whether, you know, and then certain airports, as you know, we talked about, have their own special restrictions. Some airports uh, restrict certain aircraft after certain hours of the night, won't start operations till a certain time in the morning. Others just have general restrictions on their noise levels, uh, practices on how aircraft um, enter uh, a align with the runway so that they aren't flying over specific uh, noise-sensitive regions. So there's a noise is part of it. We've certainly been looking at that for our vertical lift uh, aircraft. Uh, our new H-160 helicopter has a what we call the blue edge blade. The blade is not straight like we're traditionally expect to see on helicopters. It has a little double bend in it. And that cut its noise level by about 40 dB. That's better than half just by optimizing the shape of the blade to reduce uh, its noise level. I think as projections for advanced air mobility, whether you want to call them flying taxis or, you know, urban air mobility come into place and there's potential for many, many more aircraft, noise will become an, a, a, a prominent concern but it's always going to be about safety and and secondary what we're seeing it's the emissions and its impact on the on the environment it's the little things
0: that add up to make a big difference
1: and and i you know i always tell my my teams that it's one thing to have these big steps right moving uh, to cleaner fuels to different materials to changing the way the processes and, and the uh, procedures for the way we fly. But oftentimes it's little tiny things that are fractions of a percent that add up to big impact.
0: When you look at the big impact, air, airports play a large role in transition to the sustainability as Airbus moves to sustainable aviation fuel to 50% plan. Do the airports have to upgrade their fueling infrastructure? Do they have to make changes to enable your customers, the airlines to use that fuel?
1: So the the 50% blend that is uh, approved today is a drop-in fuel. Uh, Airports and all of the infrastructure around fueling can take that up to 50% blend without any changes to their systems. Now, the the problem today is you can't get that fuel. The amount of SAF, sustainable aviation fuel, accounts for something on the order of one-tenth of one percent of the annual usage of fuel, so some airports are getting up to thirty percent, which they're blending into the rest. You know, putting in the same storage tanks as as their other fuels, so it even gets blended down then. Uh, by the time it gets to an aircraft, but it it is completely transparent and interchangeable today. Now beyond that fifty percent, that's where the lot the work is coming in. It's you know for us, it's what's the impact on the aircraft. Uh, for the airports and the infrastructure and for the producers of these fuels, it, there is a lot of work going on. Uh, interestingly enough, it comes down to that petroleum has such impurities in it that have been utilized for the you know the, all the time that we've been using uh, Jet-A or kerosene, that by going to these, uh, whether they're the biofuels or the sustainable fuels, whether they're coming from animal byproducts or agricultural waste, or like I said, completely synthetic, uh, they're cleaner. And its we have to understand what role those impurities have played. And sometimes by taking those impurities out, we actually have second order issues that have to be addressed. Things like some seals, gaskets, some pumps, they may have to be replaced or with new materials. And so there's a lot of work going on, but up to the 50% that is approved today, no change. Then what happens when hydrogen
0: enters the picture? I'm assuming the infrastructure has to be upgraded.
1: Yeah, I mean it's going to be a different infrastructure for hydrogen, and we see that entering the the airport ecosystem well before the aircraft, because hydrogen brings benefits that the ground transportation industry is already beginning to adopt. You know, we think about all the uh, battery powered electric cars that have certainly hit the mar- market. But I, I don't think the general public is aware of the tens of thousands of hydrogen powered fuel cell vehicles that are already on the road in the US. And the infrastructure that has been gone into those is going to be transitioning into airports for all that ground support equipment, right? Whether it's the, the tugs that are currently running on diesel or uh, to, you know that push the aircraft back from the gate, uh, the belt loaders, baggage carts, and then all the service vehicles around the airport that are delivering uh, food, that are emptying the lavatories, the uh, you know the emergency vehicles, security vehicles, all that on an airport has the option to look at utilizing hydrogen to to eliminate their carbon emissions. So we're seeing airports already starting to investigate this and put that structure into place. By the time aircraft start arriving in the mid-30s, we can tap into into that structure and expand it for the amount of demand that the aircraft themselves will require.
0: What are the, the regulators' takes on hydrogen? Are they, is there a lot of questions around safety? Or what are the regulators, the glo- let's call them the global regulators, thinking as Airbus develops hydrogen aircraft?
1: Well, I, you know, it's important to engage the, the regulators up front and, and we're involved with, with several of them around the world, not just even in, simply an education process, but also getting them involved in understanding what are going to be the standards, what are gonna be the practices and procedures to ensure that everything is handled in the safest possible manner. Because you know, as I mentioned, safety is that unbreakable floor that we cannot exceed right we cannot say well we're going to be cleaner so we'll take a higher risk no 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 that's not acceptable we we will not increase risk but be cleaner and lower our impact on the environment
0: as you go towards hydrogen could you increase the distance that the aircraft flies from a density perspective you can hold more hydrogen versus the traditional jet fuel today
1: well, yeah, I mean, the the nice thing about hydrogen is that every say every pound of hydrogen has three times the energy of an equi- equivalent weight uh, of jet fuel. I mean, that's the great news, right? So it's lighter. The bad news is that hydrogen is is very voluminous it, at atmospheric pressure. You know, hydrogen takes up thousands of times the, the volume that it, that you know that jet fuel is. And even when you compress the gas to several hundred times atmospheric pressure, you still are in the, you know, eight to ten times the volume. So what we're looking at is is actually liquefying hydrogen. And when you liquefy hydrogen, that same energy content is still four times the volume of jet A. So it's going to, it's larger now it's lighter, right? One third the weight, four times the volume. But now you have a cryogenic liquid. Liquid hydrogen is cold. I mean, really cold. It's like 400 some odd degrees below zero Fahrenheit. It's cold, cold stuff. So to keep it from evaporating, from boiling off, you put it in a, in a storage tank that is well insulated and keeps the pressure and what and to reduce that you, uh, the surface content, right where where it's going to boil off the heat, you put it in a spherical container or a very large cylindrical container. So those today those weigh a lot. So you know the the key technologies are reducing the weight of the tanks, um, and then because of the size of these tanks, the weight the aircraft has to be a little bit differently designed to to handle that larger volume of fuel. So probably not longer flights for a while. The first aircraft that we're looking at will have one to 2,000 mile range while transporting between one and 200 people. So it's a, it's a shorter range aircraft, right? This is not a transoceanic type of craft. It's a, you know, get you across a continent. But I think as the experience uh, with hydrogen, with new fuels, Develops over the following several decades, we'll start seeing larger aircraft that will be taking on longer routes and, and greater payloads. Uh, what we're talking about with our zero-emission aircraft that will be introduced in the 30s, it, think about it as a, as a first in a new generation of aircraft. You know, and, there, and there's going to be some aircraft even before ours hit the road uh, or hit the skies, I should say, that are based on taking existing aircraft and retrofitting them with hydrogen fuel cells, burning gaseous hydrogen. But they're going to be very limited in range and payload because they're not optimized for the new technologies and, and not only the new opportunities that hydrogen brings, but like I said, because of the larger volume, some of the restrictions.
0: There's two sides. Retrofitting. I look at the regulatory side. If I was regu- regu- regulator, I would have questions. That so we're seeing on the ground side, retrofittings going away. It's not scalable. Everything's going factory gr- factory grade. So it seems that it gives you a competitive ad- advantage there because Airbus will manufacture them in your factory. So in theory, let's say I-, I use the term RJ for our listeners, the regional jets. Do you start at regional jets, and then you work your way, say, from Florida to New York, and then once you've conquered that. And then 10 years, five years, then you go from New York to L.A. Is that kind of how you see the hydrogen rolling out in routes similar to that?
1: Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's we don't particularly look at specific routes, but but range um, is really going to be the issue uh, that and the infrastructure on the ground. Right. We're no no airlines going to buy an aircraft that they can't refuel. So we're working very closely with the energy industry primarily those that are working to develop the hydrogen infrastructure for ground vehicles to say, now, how do we start putting this into airports? And then working, of course, with the airports uh, to make that happen. So there's a lot of work that, that is happening now. I, I, I've, I've heard a lot of people say, so which comes first, You're right? The, the hydrogen aircraft or the hydrogen infrastructure, the chicken or the egg? I, I'd like to say it's more like peas and carrots, right? They all have to happen together and they, they, they work very nicely on the plate together.
0: And Airbus's home country of France, you have Hopium, which is the, the former gentleman that ran tra- transportation under President Macron, is making a lot of breakthroughs on hydrogen for the ground vehicle side. Perhaps there's something going on there. I, I think about fuels, we talked about su- sustainable aviation fuel, we talked about traditional jet A fuel, we talked about hydrogen. Do these all become alternatives in, in the future or does early on does the industry come together and a standard emerges where this is going to be the standard because once you have the standard like we have jet a it's scalable so if you're in uh, charles de gaulle or you're in miami or lax okay you know you don't need a different type of fuel you know the fuel is going to be there so does the standard emerge early
1: well i think what you're going to see is there's four different paths if i have that right right we're going to have jet a for quite some time it's not going to go away because there are so many refineries and the availability today uh, around the globe will take some time to replace. And it will be replaced with biofuels and then eventually sustainable fu- uh, aviation fuels, uh, excuse me, the synthetic aviation fuels. We ca- I'll call them SAF because whether it's sustainable or synthetic, it's, they're all gonna be the same. And that'll take some time and, and, and we're, our hope is, or it's certainly our intent, is the existing infrastructure will support those because you have aircraft that are in service today that'll be in service for another 40 years. We have aircraft that we're gonna be building for the next 10 years or 20 years that will be in service for 40 years after that. So having those fuels available or at least compatible fuels is something that's gonna be a very, very long, a long-term practice. And then you look at things like hydrogen. We're talking liquid hydrogen. There are probably some smaller aircraft that will use gaseous hydrogen developing the ecosystem for those at airports is something that is already, like I said, underway. And then there's the battery vehicles that, you know, the those short range advanced air mobilities, you know, hold two to four people, can make a hop of, you know, 10 to 30 miles, uh, you know, bringing people into the airports. Uh, those are going to take, you know, electric charging stations, somewhat like what we're dealing with today for for automobiles and bringing that infrastructure into the airport. So depending upon what role an airport is going to play uh, in the 2050 and beyond frame, they might have different fuels available. When I was learning to fly, there were, I think, five different types of fuels available at an airport. Certainly there was Jet A, but there was gasoline, there were different types of aviation grade fuels, uh, depending upon what, what your engine desired those have coalesced uh, down to quite a few less uh, today, but we have to, you know, if we're going to be really concerned about our environmental impact, concerned about the future of, you know, this planet, uh, sometimes we're just going to have to, you know, say different fuels are going to have different purposes. And as, the cleaner fuels become more available; they'll take up more of the of that market. But we're going to have uh, several for quite some time.
0: Different fuels, different purposes. Airbus, multinational corporation, you make great aircraft, but you also make helicopters. Does that same approach of different purposes, different fuels, carry over to helicopters as well?
1: Absolutely. I mean, we're we're looking at the helicopter uh, regime. Things like hydrogen. It, you know is on the longer term goal. Um, the synthetic aviation fuels also part of the path, sustainable aviation fuels today you can put 50 percent blend uh, in our helicopters. And we are actually offering an option today that on our single engine uh, helicopters, you can purchase an option for electrification. Now, that's batteries that are charged by the, the aircraft. So the invent, uh, in the advent of a engine failure, you have electrical power to turn the rotor for, uh, to recover from an emergency. Um, it's about 30 seconds, which if you're a helicopter pilot and under, you know, understand auto rotation that you know flip that switch when you get to the bottom, a little bit of power to help set it down exactly where you want it. That's a huge thing. So, yes, you know, we, we are the, you know, we own more than 50 percent of the civil helicopter market um, in the world. Uh, for those who are, you know, look up in the sky and whether it's the, the Coast Guard here in the U.S. or your local police department or, or emergency um, uh, medical helicopters, those are oftentimes uh, more often than not our, our Airbus. So uh, that is absolutely part of what we're looking at.
0: Let's let's step inside the the aircraft for I a minute, mean, both the helicopter and the jet. Do the materials used inside the aircraft start to become more environmentally friendly over time? Perhaps re- recycled fabrics. Do you start to see the sustainability go to inside the aircraft?
1: Yeah. Well, <clears throat> so you bring up an interesting point, which is what you know you can think of as the circle circular kind of economy, which is how do you design the aircraft for recyclability at the end of its life? Now it may be. 30 or 40 years away, but you want to make certain that you can either recycle or or cycle down uh, the materials so that they have a use, whether it's the, the airframe itself or all those interior materials, the overhead bins, the, the seats, the carpets. You know, while the aircraft itself may last decades, interiors tend to get replaced more often than that. So we want to make sure that not only <laughs> they meet all the safety requirements of which there are many but they are produced in a way that is sustainable and that they have that option for recycling at the end of their life so that is a very active uh, subject and i think you know for the people who are you know flying uh, and get onto one of the newer aircraft that are coming off our assembly lines uh, they will notice that the aircraft feels cleaner feels brighter There are less touch surfaces in restrooms. You know, we've learned lessons from COVID and from some of the other previous uh, pandemics that have been integrated into our designs to make things safer, to make them cleaner, and basically more friendly to the traveling public.
0: I've, I've been in a teardown of one of your aircrafts before an airline invited me. I am amazed at the amount of detail doing a tear down. They, and they said, look down the miles of of wires. It was really, truly remarkable. And all the say the seats, the carpets, everything it came out, got replaced. It's really nice to hear that Airbus isn't investing in embracing the circular economy because that stuff could be reused instead of throwing it out like they
1: used to do in the old days. Similar like they smoked cigarettes. They threw out the nasty tars. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, some people think that recycling an aircraft means that you can buy a coffee table that's part of a wing or something, um, which which is great. And I think you can get like a little keychain, Bob, that was part of an aircraft. But we're thinking a little more practical than that.
0: Practicality is what sells Airbus. You developed the Zephyr. It's a, it's a stratospheric unmanned aircraft continuously fly for months at a time around 70,000 feet above weather, above conventional air, air traffic. I think it's really cool from a technology standpoint, but I love to know: is the goal of the Zephyr aircraft to monitor the climate and take into account the data you gather from that into your innovation sustainability plans? Because now you're getting real-time weather data.
1: Zephyr is more on the on the military side. Zephyr, like you said, is this very high altitude, what we call a hasp, uh, high altitude persistent surveillance. So it's an aircraft that that you could put up with either cameras or visual systems. That would be in lieu of a of a satellite, right? So, satellites only you know pass over parts of the globe uh, on a you know on a predicted schedule. Uh, you can put up a Zephyr and have it orbit overhead and be able to surveil an, an an area, which would be very important for military purposes. Or it can be a communication hub, right? Uh, during a natural disaster, you could put a Zephyr up. And it could become a communication relay for an area that that otherwise wouldn't have that. So, I mean, that is another option. You could use it for monitoring the atmosphere, but we actually have a different experiment that we're looking specifically on that. And that's what we call the Perlin two program. And the Airbus Perlin two program is a manned platform versus the Zephyr, which is a unmanned solar aircraft, like you said, that can stay up for months at a time. The, the Perlin program is a glider that we currently hold the altitude record on. Not just the altitude record for a glider, but the altitude record for any fixed-wing aircraft at holding altitude. Right now, it's uh, over 70,000 feet um, that, it was, that it was able to fly, 76,000, I think, or 214 feet, but I forget the exact number, but we're using that to get up to those high altitudes without an engine so that they can take very pristine measurements of the atmosphere uh, to determine what are the impacts that we're seeing over time, uh, as well as understanding the chemistry uh, at, at those flight levels. And so that air- aircraft uh, will be flying again this next summer, and we're we're actually shooting to... to had that aircraft uh, surpassed 90,000 feet which is pretty incredible and even more incredible that it doesn't have an engine so
0: you're way up there in the atmosphere <laughs> there's no denying that that's really impressive I minute mean, putting this whole conversation into context overall, how is airbus approaching sustainability and innovation because to me you're look to me you're taking a holistic approach you're looking all you're looking at circular economy inside the aircraft you're looking at fuels for what it does for carbon it just seems that airbus is taking this this whole holistic approach of how do we build a better aircraft and how do we ensure a better environment for our kids and our kids kids
1: yeah i mean i think you you mentioned it earlier you know it's it's not about you know one big solution there's not going to be a silver bullet, even though I, I keep hearing claims of various technologies that are going to solve all of our problems. But it's going to be all these little pieces, uh, some of them bigger than others, uh, some of them seemingly inconsequential, that are all necessary if we're actually going to achieve these goals. And Airbus recognizes that, and we're pursuing an all-of-the-above strategy, right? We're going to determine what are the true impacts here. What are the solutions that are going to work? And what are the secondary and tertiary impacts? Because sometimes we might find the, what looks to be a great solution and then find out the ramifications are even worse. So, you know, there's a lot to be done and we want to make sure we understand it all. So, yeah, holistic is the way you have to look at it. And it can't just be Airbus, right? You know, we, we jokingly say to be sustainable, we have to be able. And we have to partnership, partner with others. No Airbus can't do it alone. One company can't do it alone. One industry can't do it alone. We all have to work together if we're gonna achieve this incredibly necessary goal for all of humankind partnerships will define
0: the future of sustainability. I love the all the above strategy because it's gonna take everybody together, not one company operating a silo. It's gonna be all companies operating together. Amanda, as we like to wrap up this insightful conversation where you shed a great deal of positive light on Airbus, what would you like our listeners to take away with them today?
1: A, don't be disheartened. (laughs) Particularly in aviation, it's going to be a long process. Um, It's very complicated safety, of course, cannot be compromised. So we want to make sure we do things right. But everybody is going to be part of the solution. And that means the traveling public as well. And even those who don't travel, who rely upon products and ideas uh, to move freely around the world. And getting all of, everybody has that impact, right? Everybody is going to be part of the solution. So pitch in, help out, share ideas when you have them Uh, there are people willing to listen and talk about how we can move forward as amanda said
0: airbus does things right i repeat airbus does things right because today is tomorrow tomorrow is today and the future is airbus amanda thank you so much for coming on sae tomorrow today
1: it's my pleasure and thank you for having me
0: thank you for listening to sae tomorrow today if you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more please kindly rate review and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Be sure to join us next week as we hear from representatives from Here Technologies. On this episode, they'll discuss the impact that intelligent speed assistance technology will have on the driving experience.